Hey everybody and welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast and have we got a treat show for you this week. Uh, If I look at my numbers correctly this might be show 117 but nowhere near as many shows as our super special guest for this week. More on that in a moment. First of all, uh, Graham, how are you mate? I'm fantastic, thank you Adia. I had a good weekend, got to take some pictures and I'm very excited for the chat tonight. Uh, Somebody long, long overdue on the podcast, so yeah, it's going to be great. All right, and Rach, how are you? Hi, yes, I'm here, Um, back from other more travels and things, so uh, yeah, unfortunately not holiday stuff, work stuff, but uh, we'll chat about that later as well, so uh, I'm glad to be here. That's good, Mm -hmm. we were saying last week we were hopeful you'd come back, because last we heard of you, you were in some sort of underground rave pit in Berlin, is that right? (laughs) I I, I actually was, yeah, (laughs) it was originally an artificial flower factory, then it um, uh, became uh, derelict after getting bombed in the war, unsurprisingly. And then it uh, became an underground illegal rave den of sorts, I think. And uh, and yeah, so I went along to do some um, uh, training there. And it was literally down in the basement, had to go through a trap door. So uh, that was all fun. <laughs> through a trap door. I'm <laughs> not sure. I know <laughs> I know it's 2018, but I'm not sure I'd have the confidence to go through a trap door in Berlin. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> I didn't really have much of a choice, unfortunately. It wouldn't have been my my first kind of like, oh, yay, let's do this. But um, it was actually quite good fun in the end. So, uh, yeah. All good. <laughs> All right, glad to well, glad to hear it. Glad to hear your voice. Glad you're back on the show. Uh, I'm in one piece, <laughs> and in one, and that's even more important. Um, absolutely. So, okay. Well, I tell you what. Um, uh, well, uh, let's hand back over to Graham, who is going to introduce our guest for this week. Graham. In some ways, it seems kind of bonkers to be introducing this gentleman because it's hard to imagine that anybody who is listening to this show is not already very, very familiar with at least one aspect of his work. Um, it is somebody who ha- was at the absolute forefront of the revival of film there before it all started in some ways. Somebody who is the godfather of the now very popular analog photography podcasting world uh, and somebody who has inspired a lot of us to pick up cameras and get out there. And as Aidan and Rachel will both testify, somebody who I have just been fanboying over terribly <laughs> since we got on the call. Welcome to the show, Michael Rasso from the Film Photography Podcast and Project. Michael, it's great to have you here. Hey, we're back. hi michael Uh, i'd love to start with a catchphrase there excellent (laughs) save that for posterity (laughs) a real pleasure to be on your show ah it is an absolute delight i mean there are so many things the fpp has become such a cornerstone for the film photography world um there's so many things that we want to talk to you about but it seems like the first place to start is how in 2009 which is you know, nine years ago now, um, that was three years before Kodak even went into Chapter 12, uh, a long time before the kind of upward surge of analog photography had started. Um, you and Dwayne Polko and John Fidelli decided to sit down in the studio together and record a podcast about your love of shooting film. Why? Why, why did you do that? I did that because uh, a year earlier, in 08, I had pulled out all of my own film photography gear that had been stored away in a closet for 10 years at least, 
because I put my still photography life on hold to work in filmmaking. And as I was continued to work in filmmaking, you know, early on, everything was shot on film. For example, if you shoot a motion picture and you even want an opportunity to be on cable television, HBO, Showtime, back in the late 1990s, you needed to make sure you shot on film because otherwise it wouldn't even be considered. Or Blair Witch and um, 28 Days Later. So there were no video options in order to sell your film. So as the time progressed and video became more of a, um, an accepted medium, I became much more involved with, with video productions. And quite frankly, it didn't suit me well. So I think creatively, I started looking for an outlet. And that's when I pulled my own gear out of the closet, went on the internet, and discovered Flickr.com and the fact that other people were as enthusiastic as I was about shooting film. That really, I mean, enthusiasm is absolutely the thing that drove the shows right from the get-go. Your your absolute passion um, for this medium. You'd obviously shot film in the past, and as you said, your your background is in movie making and cinematography. Um, when you came back to it, it feels like a lot of what you were doing in the early shows was you were learning again as you were going. Was that the case um, or, or was it just refreshing your memory on stuff? Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, I had, you know, many years knowledge of handling 16 millimeter, Super 8, 35 millimeter. But in all of my years, I've, you know, I never shot still photography, large format, medium format. Those formats were new to John and I. Uh, Dwayne Polk, you had shot large format. So for me, there was a lot of discovery, and I found that completely fascinating. So the first time I got my hand on a roll of 120 film, you know, that was relayed on the podcast, and, you know, that was a real-life experience. And I think the discovery and enthusiasm you know, as you mentioned, translate through to the show to the listeners. Yes, uh, particularly, I mean, Polaroid was something which very early on, uh, even before Impossible really got going. I mean, you were there right at the beginning with that. That again, you seem to pick up and fall in love with very quickly. Uh, I, yeah, as a matter of fact, early early film photography podcast episodes could have easy, easily been called the Polaroid <laughs> podcast. Uh, it was right at the cusp of Florian Caps starting the Impossible Project. And soon after we started the podcast, they launched that and, and we were there. You know, we were at the first press me press uh, meeting in New York City Um and very much, I mean, I, I shot Polaroid photography as, as a kid. And I remember the days when here in the States, you could walk into a Walmart and you could buy a two pack of Polaroid film for $15. And I remember the last days of Polaroid, uh, you know, photographers and friends of mine not thinking too much about it until it was no longer available. Then it was just a freak out. 
then it was like a scene from 28 Days Later, basically, is what, <laughs> what happened then, I guess. Absolutely. And I can't... It's it's hard, it's really hard to to bottle enthusiasm, uh, but when the impossible project was started, I mean, they really really did a wonderful job of 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 you know sparking the imagination of so many shooters who were either shooting Polaroid film or started finding old cameras and wanted to shoot Polaroid film. So I just I, I was enthusiastic as as any of our listeners with that, and I talked about it endlessly. As a matter of fact, there were lots of groans and moans because I would talk <laughs> about it so much. So, and uh, I mean, if if anyone that listened to the film photography podcast, the whole catalog will see this great transition from that instant mania into more standard formats, and and currently with thirty five millimeter and home processing and developing your own color so um i always find it fascinating uh but i guess i'm not surprised that i mean we just have not run out of any topics to talk about even though we're nine years in in 2009 these days there are a lot there's a really wide selection of um great and varied podcasts around the analog photography field and adjacent to it but in 2009 podcasting was not the same accessible medium that it is now um and the fpp was not your first podcast was it this was one you thought you already had a podcast um going at the time um is is, is that am i right in saying that you you are absolutely correct the fpp is a spin-off of the alternative cinema podcast and so can we yeah no, no no carry on please michael i was gonna say um uh, there was so much film talk. Let's put it this way. Uh, at the time, I was involved in a low-budget independent movie studio that also had a, a robust, well, did have a robust DVD business selling DVDs to fans. And the, the genesis of the Alternative Cinema podcast was to um, broadcast to those fans of what's new, what's exciting, what's going on. And I had been working with well, I've been working with John Fideli since since college, and I had been working with Dwayne Polkew probably 10, 12 years. And I started the Alternative Cinema podcast to connect to the fan who is interested in cult movies. But as I progressed producing the Alternative Cinema podcast, it became the film photography podcast because that's what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so that's it. So, so I spun it off into the film photography podcast and then the alternative cinema podcast changed a little bit and then it it kind of sputtered out. It, it ran out of steam. Can you talk a bit about your work in producing and also in the work bringing alternative films to market that may have been because you know that is your bread and butter and it's I, I find it hugely interesting and, and also I think it speaks a lot to um your love of film and the things that film has to offer that digital mediums don't could you just give us a bit of your background without what you do and, and the lengths that you go to with some of these films uh sure um well when i was a child i was exposed to kind of m macabre media 
on local television. And in the 1970s, independent TV channels would broadcast kind of kooky, crazy cult movies like Dracula versus Frankenstein or the Godzilla films, Grave of the Vampire. Um, You know, these were many of these were low budget independent feature films. And then, of course, on the new on the newsstand, you could find Famous Monsters magazine. So as a kid, I was really exposed to this kind of media at a very young age. And as I went through high school and college, I just started taking film and filmmaking classes to the point where I just wanted to make movies. And my background is in cinematography. So I wanted to shoot these movies. And towards the latter end of university, I just banded together with all the students, John Fideli being one of them, who were interested in, you know, outside of class, shooting short films, you know, putting the idea of shooting a feature film, um, you know, young and crazy things, as, as a young person would do, which is, you know, you, you just, you have a crazy idea and you just execute it. And that's what I did. And that's how I got involved with filmmaking. And I just stayed connected throughout all of the years. I mean, throughout the years, I would have corporate jobs working for Comcast. Uh, I would have corporate video jobs, writing uh, corporate scripts and producing corporate scripts. So I always had a, um, I guess you would call it a jobby job. But then in between all hours, I would be making uh, movies, be it short film or feature films. So that was what was going on in the background. And then you then started up um, uh, pop cinema and alternative cinema as um, brands for actually hunting down um, some of these old films that you were talking about that you grew up watching that have since then just not had any mainstream release, hunting those down um, and making them available uh, to a wider audience. That in itself seems like it's a fairly demanding mission. Uh, Well, what happened was when I finished school (laughs) and I realized that no one was going to give us any money to make movies. And we realized that, I mean, when I say we, myself, John Fideli and a few other uh, college college mates. We just figured out that we just need to do it ourselves. So I was holding down a job at Comcast, which is uh, today it's it's the company that owns Universal, um, and it's become quite a big company. I actually joke that maybe I should have stayed there, uh, <laughs> but I, I worked in New Jersey. Uh, I was a commercial producer producing commercials. And I had a a full facility and the blessing of the powers that be there to do whatever I wanted to do at night. So I had the use of a studio and we, John and I and our friends were producing short form films. And when we we figured out that there was no budgets, we just decided to do it ourselves. So we started out by producing some very low budget independent horror films like uh, Ghoul School (laughs) <laughs> and the the basement um that was shot on super eight uh and then we would just you know 
we would just peddle them to try to get a home video deal. And when we realized that no one was going to help us do that, I just started a home home entertainment company. And at the time, it was the tail end of VHS and DVD. The DVD market was just starting. And within a year, it exploded. And when I say that, I mean every store, every shop had large DVD sections. And this was before internet streaming. So people who loved movies at night, them and their friends or their significant other, they would go DVD shopping. It was the thing to do. And these stores couldn't get enough product for their shelf. And I always joke because it's probably true. If I shot a wedding and put it in a DVD package with a UPC code, I probably could have sold it to Best Buy. (laughs) (laughs) Real, just such a just such a demand. So here we are producing, you know, grade B. That's being kind. (laughs) (laughs) I I love a good B movie. (laughs) Grade B horror. And, you know, we, we were selling them like gangbusters. So what happened, so that was a natural evolution into restoration of older films because our placement of our crappy movies was so, <laughs> was so good that elder filmmakers, you know, filmmakers 20, 30 years older than me, saw my product placement and would cold call me and introduce themselves. Hello, I'm so-and-so and I produced a series of films in the 1960s. Would you be interested in licensing them? And that's how it was. It was a snowball effect. And that's how I got my foot in the door and be, became introduced to the world of, uh, well, now it's called scanning, but back then it was called telecine, which is, uh, transferring 35 millimeter motion picture film to back then it was tape. Now it's to a digital file. So that's how I got involved with restoration of older movies and presentation and release of older movies. So, and once that snowball started rolling down the hill, it kept rolling for about 10 years uh, until, which it, it's interesting because everything kind of evolves and changes uh, around 2008 is when I started getting back into film photography. And a year later, I launched the Film Photography Project. And that's about the time that that whole home video market was evolving into what it is today, which is digital streaming. And yeah. so, there, yeah, there is, I mean, be lucky. I, a child today probably doesn't even know what a DVD is. No, that's sadly that I'm, I'm thinking about my two, and that's probably not far off the truth, unfortunately. Um, it's in talking about evolving. So the FPP when it started, you and John and Dwayne, um, it was a very um, as it's, you know, it was driven by your enthusiasm and obviously um, and your relationship with John and Dwayne, which has obviously been there for quite a while, um, and it was very informal and. Um, has evolved um a lot over the years i think you that format with the three of you went for just over a year and then it changed and um, i think matt mirage was the first person then to sort of come on as, as the next regular host and um when you started the fpp 
did you have a- any idea of it being anything other than a fun outlet for you to talk about something that you were passionate about? Uh, that That's absolutely correct. I thought it as a fun outlet for me to explore film photography with a community of people. And the evolution of it has been slow, but over the nine years, it, it did evolve. And I've said to myself that if I don't want film photography project to become a business, because that's when it's time for me to walk away. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. The connected store, filmphotographystore.com, it, it was made for listeners of the show. You know, its only purpose was to serve the listeners of the show with me being a customer thinking, how would I want to buy film and what price would I want to pay? And that's just how it started. So in I'm, I'm sure you guys have comments. The recent surge in film photography in the last 18 months is overwhelming to me. Mm. I don't even know how to parse it yet, but it's strange because it's such a surge but yes my my intentions with fpp is strictly a film community and so when it did start to evolve um i suppose uh, uh, about a year and a bit in um duane moved on to do other stuff with his life and so the podcast evolved then and um first matt and then uh, i'm probably getting the, the order on these wrong but the sort of the the core crew of the regular ones gradually came in of um, uh, Matt and Mark O'Brien and Leslie Lazenby, who, as you pointed out to us before the show started, are driving nine hours up to record with you, um, which is insane <laughs> to me. Um, how, how did you get, how did this team come together? Um, myself and Dwayne Polkew went to a New York City trade show in 2011. It's called the Photo District News. Short is PDN. They have it every year. And it's it's a typical trade show. So I would just put word out on the on the podcast. Hey, we're you know, Dwayne and I are gonna be at the PDN Photo Expo in New York City on this date. Come on down. And you know. Like three or four people showed up, and one of them was Matt Mirage. And as soon as I saw him, I said to myself, this guy, I knew. I I will say I think I have a very good eye for talent. (laughs) Uh, He he had a backpack on, first of all, that had an 8x10 camera in it. (laughs) (laughs) And a hunch by this point, I would imagine. And he's a, you know, he's a young guy, uh, thin and wiry. And he had this and he was wearing it so confidently and it was so friggin' heavy. But it was was like it was light as a feather. He wore it like it was light as a feather. And he's just so vested in film photography. And he started with digital because he's much younger than me. So he started his life in digital photography. And then he made the hard transition to film photography. And I just, I saw him, I interviewed him on the floor at the PDN. And I said, Matt, why don't you, why don't you come by? Why don't you come by and and be on the show? And unbeknownst to me, at that same time, Dwayne Polkew was going to transition out. 
So Matt came down, driving, of course, those nine hours. And uh, we recorded a few episodes, and I invited him back, and he's been on ever since. Yep. That's kind of how we got Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a variant of that story, isn't it, Rachel? You were a guest on the show first, and then you joined the team. You know, it's like... that's right. That's true. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was all down to that wonderful first interview that I gave. Clearly, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I, and, and, and not only that, but all the positive feedback we got from it from the listeners, and we thought, hang on a minute. <laughs> I, w- I was so so nervous and so embarrassed about that first interview. Oh God, when I think back about it, I don't like to think about it now. Oh, at least you know, in a way, it's not nine years worth of of uh, shows that I'm having to like worry about people going back through. It, it's it's crazy, isn't it? Because it's as soon as you put something out there, you, you kind of you're moving on and into the future. Whereas obviously it becomes a back catalogue, doesn't it? And and so people, anybody can go back and listen to it to those again. You know, years later, uh, as they do obviously with Michael. And it's um, and you're kind of a different person by that point. So when I think about everything that's changed in the last you know couple of years or whatever, it just seems seems crazy really but you're right it's a, a variant on that story um you just uh, kept on messaging me till i said yes <laughs> <laughs> well you know sometimes, so that was good. sometimes you have to push hard sometimes. persistence pays off yes absolutely. absolutely well i tell you actually there's a bit of a persistent story that i'm interested in michael if i might ask about it so one of the things and, and i i do remember listening to the mostly polaroid shows back a, a while back um uh, but i can't claim to have been there back there back there back in the beginning but uh as, as a listener but i do remember those and and i and i remember over the years hearing the increase of mentioning about the camera donations program uh and you know and the, the checking out of those cameras and and donating them to schools and school programs and stuff like that that was another thing that seemed to evolve over time and, and become really quite a large effort the school camera donation program has sometimes I feel a little bit overwhelmed by it, but thankfully the the gents here in New Jersey help me out with that uh, about once every two weeks. Um, that was another situation that had a natural evolution. And uh, here in the U.S., I'm guessing elsewhere in the world, there's a great need for film cameras in classrooms, mostly high schools some grade schools because the teachers who are enthusiastic about um, all things analog cannot get their, their hands on gear and they don't have any budget whatsoever, zero. So many of these teachers are spending the money out of their own, were spending the money out of their own pocket buying on eBay. So I don't know, I guess five, six, seven years ago, uh, I received an email from a teacher looking for some cameras and I put the word out via the show and the response was so overwhelming. And then it became a very much a word of mouth situation. Whereas once that teacher received their 20, 30, 35 millimeter SLR cameras, the word was spread to another teacher and then he or she would contact me and we would put together cameras for, for that classroom. And then we, you know, published on our website that we're doing this program. And then uh, B and H photo here in New York uh, did a blog about 
schools and donating cameras, and they included us in that. So today, uh, if if someone here in the states is either cleaning out their parents or grandparents' house, and they find all this vintage gear, rather than throw it in the garbage, they Google search donate camera, and they come across our site, and they send us the gear. And I'm every day astonished by the whole program because there's no monies involved. It uh, doesn't cost anything um, for the schools to get the cameras. And the people who are sending us the cameras have to pay the postage to get the cameras to the FPP. So it's a beautiful, it's one of these things, I, I look at it as one of these things in life that is a beautiful thing because there's nothing associated that has any connection to anything else having to do with money. There's no ulterior motive. There's, there's, it's pure. And those are the best things in life to me, whereas a large number of cameras come in. They get sorted here. They get put on a pallet. And then two, three, four, five times a year, I get an email from a professor or teacher that's saying, we need cameras. And sometimes we're sending 30 or 40 cameras out at a time. So that's how it started. That's where it's at. And it's, 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 very, it's very fulfilling because the thought of getting a camera into the hands of a kid and that child creating something with their hands, I mean, you just don't know where it's going to lead them. And that's, that's exciting to me. That's a very cool thing to, to have kicked off. Um, you, you were talking about earlier about um, never wanting the FPP to become a business because that's when you start to lose interest. And obviously the, the donations program is a fantastic example of using the power of the community that you've built and, and beyond that to achieve just a, a, a good thing, just an, an undeniably good thing that is helping people out and, and bringing photography to people who would not have access otherwise. Um, and you've already mentioned about the fact that you have, you wanted to bring films in, in a way that, because you wanted them to be available at a price that's fair. And, and since then you've um, worked hard to make films that would have been very difficult for people to get hold of um, things like uh, the Shmina films um, and the, um, uh, IR films that you've had on the name is escaping me now because my brain's blanking on me, but there's been lots of stuff. Um, more recently you have bought the, um, monobath, the FPP monobath. Yeah. How are you finding it? Because clearly you want to do more and more stuff and make more and more stuff available because it's interesting and it's fun. But the more that that grows, the harder it must be to stop it from being a business ass business. Uh, that's correct. That's, that is correct. I'm thinking, and I'm only speaking from my mindset of how I see things and perhaps I'm just a poor businessman. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know because, um, yes, as things, things are evolving very quickly in the last year, as I mentioned, the great surge of interest in film photography has created an amazing amount of pop-ups all over the place. And these pop-ups are a natural phenomenon and that are other film podcasts, um, other pop-up stores, 
um, I received an email from a, a listener, someone who found me on the web, saying, "Hey, you know, um, I want to, I want to, I want to start a film photography podcast." It, it really was almost that simple. I, I mm. want to start a photography podcast. How do I do that in my state? <laughs> and I thought, I no, I sat slumped in my chair, and I thought, oh, because you see, it's not easy. <laughs> the the I take things for granted, and because of my experiences with my other companies, the infrastructure is already here because FPP just piggybacked on top of existing companies. So I already had an office and a facility and a shipping department from my DVD days, uh, the knowledge of how to ship, um, um, a small staff. So I was able to utilize a lot of resources at no cost to FPP. And that's great, but it's difficult to replicate. And I think if I were starting from scratch, that would be almost impossible to replicate. So when someone approaches me very naively, as maybe I was 30 years ago when I started in business on my own, oh, how do I start this? I don't have a, a you know, I don't have an answer at, at the on the tip of my tongue of how to do that. It's it's all an evolution. And I don't know if I recommend, I don't think I recommended that per, this person start such a thing. And I, I think I regret sending them that email. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, FPP is a hyper-realistic version of the world. It's, it's fantasy. It's a beautiful thing. And I make sure it's that. And I think it's very important for our listeners to know that it's, it's their escape very much the way it's my escape, which is I love doing it and it's untainted by the day to day grind that everyone has in their life. And that's what I think I bring to FPP. And I think it's, it's, it goes through the wires or through the air to the listener and they feel the same way. So I, I, maybe I'm, you know, going off but on a tangent here, but, um, Getting back to, I don't know how to connect FP. I don't know how to ground FPP to reality because once things become a business, and it is already a little bit in the sense that FPP store stocks a lot of stuff, and that inventory has to be maintained. Purchase orders need to be cut. Um, accounting needs to be done. It's 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 still a great love, but I see where it's going, and I don't know. I big question mark looms over my mind. That's why I, I frequently say nothing lasts forever. Well, because it's, so, so I can, I, I'm looking at the FPP store right now, Michael, and I can see that if I chose to, if I needed to, I could buy a single 120 films ball. <laughs> <laughs> so i don't i don't think you've uh i don't think you've been you you entirely lost the uh the fairy dust that surrounds the fpp there i think you know the fact that you can sell a single film sport or or the fact uh, and below that under store is all the 620 stuff and i remember listening to the podcast when you were going through all the different development cycles and and the molding and and things like that for 620 film spools you know uh i i i however you feel on the inside uh that it's going um uh, and i hope it goes in a direction you want it to certainly from the outside this it, it it's a tremendous community venture 
Um, and and it certainly doesn't come across as being a, a commercial thing. The fact that for one dollar and nineteen cents I could buy a film spool, that's that's just awesome. Where else in the world could you get that? <laughs> you could also buy a one liter recycled container for thirty nine cents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I'm fascinated by after nine years, because you, you, you want the FPP to be this community driven or, or community based thing. And you want you don't want the store to be a business that is making that, that is becoming just a job in your life. But from the outside, people using it are going to go, well, I'm I'm sure you must have dealings with people who very much just treat it like a uh business and are demanding and um difficult and make life hard sometimes and uh, perhaps not particularly appreciative of the things that go into trying to do what you're doing over there how do you maintain the enthusiasm for for doing all of it and especially the enthusiasm for getting on air and being the anchor and the energy drive for the fbp Every show that goes out, how have you managed to maintain that over a nine-year period? Uh, well, I can give you an example of how I maintained it today, it being Monday and raining outside. Today, I'm doing it by talking to you folks. And I've become very enthusiastic and very lit up about talking about my passion. But just an hour before, I was doing some paperwork and... <laughs> it was just a grind just like everyone else has it's it's a it's a balance uh it really is and i think lately in the last few years it's been keeping in touch on a on a day-to-day or at least few time a week basis with everyone involved with fpp so i speak to leslie lazenby weekly i need to call matt mirage much more than i do matt is a uh, professional. He works in retail at a large um, uh, Midwest photo exchange. It's, I would guess you would call it a soup, a superstore. So he's very, very busy. Uh, and of course, the Jersey folks I call and see often. So I just, just try to stay connected um, with everyone to make sure, you know, we chit chat about Hey, what are you doing? What are you shooting? Are you shooting it this week? Or, oh, you didn't have time to shoot this week. Will you have time to shoot this week? Hey, do you want to hear about this? So that's, I think, what the the Drive Time podcasts have become, which is a way for the local guys to kind of skid in and literally, you know, have a chat uh, on the show to discuss what's what's going on. So, um I, st- I stay connected and enthusiastic because ultimately, and I've thought about this recently, is if it involves film in any way, shape, or form, I'm happy. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but I guess if someone is into woodcrafting or another hobby, um, they probably feel the same way. They'll do their job, whatever it needs to do, but when they can get their hands on film, um, all of a sudden you're connected to what you really are passionate about. So on a daily basis, I do handle film every single day of the year. So. 
one of the things that more recently seems to uh, and it, unsurprising given your background um is super eight uh this was a thing i think last year in particular you were really getting onto, and i'm sure this has continued um super eight as yet hasn't kind of and I'm, the reasons I'm sure of multitude, but hasn't kind of hit back in the same way that that just general stills film photography has yet. We haven't really had a chance to talk to anybody about Super 8, and it's something I would love to know more about. Can can you talk to us about your love of Super 8, why we should care about it, and if you think it's gonna if you think it's gonna come back in a way in the in the same kind of way? Uh, well, as as a teenager. I shot Super 8 constantly. So I, I caught the filmmaking bug from my dad, inherited his camera. He's, he's still with us, so he passed it down to me. Um, and then professionally, out of school, um, a friend of mine, Tim O'Raw, he produced a horror anthology film called The Basement. I was the cinematographer, and he had the bright idea to shoot it on Super 8. I thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> he insisted because of the budget. We shot it on straight. It was a disaster. <laughs> I swore I would never shoot again uh, because I moved on to, you know, being a bit of a film snob, I moved on to 16 millimeter film. And once you move on 16, eight, eight millimeter seems uh, amateur. But uh, having put it down in the 1990s, and then all the years passing by, and then recently with podcast listeners emailing me about their, hey, can you talk about Super 8? Can you talk about Super 8? Can you talk about Super 8? I, I went on eBay, and I bought a few cameras. I bought some film, and I discovered how much fun it is. I, I think it's a difficult hobby. When I say difficult, I don't mean difficult to shoot. Difficult because of the expense involved. And I think that is the stopping point for a lot of people. And I wish a company would make Super 8 affordable for your average person. For example, here uh, in the States, in Burbank, there's a company called Pro 8. And this is a company that loads their own Super 8 cartridges. So by the way, for folks listening, <laughs> it's not, I feel like I'm doing the FPP. For folks <laughs> A Super 8 cartridge is a plastic square cartridge of film that holds three minutes worth of, of movie film. So for each cartridge you pop in your camera, Canon camera, Minolta camera, they're beautiful, beautiful cameras out there with lots of features like slow motion and um, special in, built-in special effects of dissolves and whatnot. It's a great medium, but for three minutes worth of film... The cost, and this is a good cost, is here in the States $90, and that gets you your Super 8 cartridge, your processing, and your scan to a MP4 file. And at the end of it all, you have your, you have your movie, but you have three minutes that cost you $90. So it's kind of a show. It becomes like a showstopper. Like, okay, skid. How can I afford this? So what What? only recently, last week, we published a blog, How to Process Home Movie Film at Home. Can you and do that? 
Black and white, yes. Uh, color, once Kodak introduces ektachrome, yes. But, you know, if you look at the blog and there's a video attached to it, you know, I'm not doing this yet. Uh, the author, Owen, uh, the newest contributor to the FPP, is doing this at home. And it's, you know, a bit of an involved process, but it's really inexpensive if you're doing it yourself. You have to have that, I guess, drive and enthusiasm to want to do it. And I would guess 97% of uh, film photography podcast listeners are, are just doing still photography. It, it hasn't caught on fire yet, Super 8. As you said, that cost is, is a, a huge hurdle. I mean, I never shot. I was too young, obviously, because I'm such a young person. Was I mean, was Super 8 affordable back in the day? How much? How much has the cost gone up relatively since the when it was uh, you know, the norm? Well, when I was shooting Super 8 regularly, I was a teenager, so. I don't remember the actual cost, but I can tell you that, you know, back in those days when I was, you know, pumping gasoline, that was my like a job, you know, just to make some some pocket money so I could hang out with my friends. I was producing Super 8, you know, just fun, goofy Super 8 movies out of my own pocket. So you'd walk down literally or drive to your local camera store. You buy your roll of Ektachrome Super 8. You would shoot it, bring it back to that store. They would process it. And then, <laughs> and then back then, you know, I would sit at home on a little viewer and I would splice together my movie. And I guess it's my, it's, to me, it's, it's mind boggling because it's so different today. And I'm so, I guess I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, because the only play, the only venue for me to show my movies was when one of my friends had like a house party. So they would have a house party and I'd be the guy coming over with like the sheet and the projector under his arm. <laughs> you know, and like, you know, it's just a house party, music playing, but I'd put up the sheet and I would show movies of all the stuff I shot over the last year. And that was like, that was your only audience. There's no other place to show your movie. Were they supportive <laughs> audience, Michael? <laughs> Did it go well? Absolutely, because good. all your are in your films. Ah, <laughs> that's, that's always it. a good point. <laughs> oh, it was just a fun thing to do. And this is the dawn of video. So, you know, video wasn't even affordable until the mid to late 1980s. Uh, and, and I always say that, you know, video recording kind of killed filmmaking because... You know, once people got camcorders in their hands, they just shoot everything because the tape was so cheap. I mean, they'd shoot everything. Just roll, 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 shoot the ground. <laughs> I think you've just described my dad, actually. There. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, meanwhile, you know, when my dad shot home movies, he knew because of the expense that on that three minute cartridge, not only would there be Christmas, but there'd also be, you know, a birthday party. <laughs> in camera edit a beautiful thing so you know i'm doing my best but it's difficult to relate to 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 the newer generation because they don't have that kind of camera edit in their brain of like okay you know 
let me edit this in my head before I even start shooting my movie to save cost. Yeah, that is, that is tricky, isn't it? I mean, I, I do a little bit of movie shooting myself, not not making films. This is mostly just sort of family memory stuff. Um, and I'll quite happily run round with the camera and say, OK, well, I need to get one of those, one of those, one of those. And, you know, I can have a view. I have a little view of uh, of different types of shots I want. But I don't know. I don't ever feel that I need to shoot them in order or, or worry about, you know, uh, what happens when. Because um, I can just take it home, I can edit it. Um, uh, I'm actually doing most of my video editing right now on an iPad. Um, you can get a, a, a non-linear editor on an iPad now that will, you know, will handle pretty much anything you can throw at it up to 4K. Um, yes, it's a totally, it's a totally different thing. Um, uh, but I would love to have a go. I would love to have a go uh, shooting movie film i really would I, I was hoping that uh you know code kodak would bring out the new camera and it would give me a, a little bit of an easier learning curve into into something like that well I uh, sorry oh, michael sorry. <laughs> no no, no I, yeah. I was just gonna say i remember having to um um like plug in uh, an avid system uh and it was like it was absolutely enormous like the size of a wall you know like <laughs> with all the cables and all the hardware and everything and um as a as a video editing uh system and it cost like 45 grand at the time it was like the price of a house at, at the yes. time and this was sort of like uh, early 2000s and you just think my god that's you know just a piece of software you can get as an express software now on your phone or on your ipad as you were saying aid and it's just mad isn't it crazy i think that uh with with both kodak and film ferrania because film ferrania's original kickstarter if you go to their page mm -hmm. they were keen on releasing a 35 millimeter still film uh, slide film, color reversal. And they had a filmmaker package where if you opt in, you could get a package that gets you Super 8 as well nice. as 16. So that's the package I bought into. And I'm, you know, we're all still waiting, I know, and I have faith. <laughs> so for, for your listeners who don't follow the film Ferrania story, have you uh, that? <laughs> They've had, they've had a tough ride. We we did mm. um, at, at one point when we thought things were close to coming together. We had uh, Dave Bias on the show, um, oh, and uh, Dave Dave was great. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, that I think that was just around the time that the P thirty was was just starting to surface. But the stories he told about how hard it's been for them all is incredible, and the fact that they're still going is a testament to the power and the passion of their dream, I think. I've been shooting stills now for the last nine years, and anything we do in involving filmmaking has been just a media manager or producer capacity, so I haven't gotten behind an actual film camera, except for Super 8, a little film. But that's, you know, Super 8 is point and shoot, so to speak. And... When I try to shoot something more elaborate, like 16 millimeter, I realize how amazingly difficult it is and how I appreciate any film media, anything I watch on Netflix or television. I mean, think about it. In something you shoot in a still photography, still camera, imagine shooting that as a moving picture where the whole scene needs to be lit. It's so difficult. And when I see filmmaker friends of mine, I actually grab them. I'm like, filmmaking 
and I almost shake them sometimes. I say, <laughs> is so difficult. I mean, because it's all about the lighting and, and you know, if you're using film as opposed to, to a digital medium. So um, I'm very enthusiastic about it and hopeful that both Film Ferrani and Kodak will be successful in, in, in you know, reintroducing Super 8. Um, but the it's very hard work. And when I say that, I truly mean that. And also, I don't know if you, you folks know about the Lomography, Lomo Kino. It's a little camera that you could put 36 exposure roll and... I have have seen that. Yeah, it's um, in fact, some friends of mine shot their wedding video on it. (laughs) Well, of course, not video, but their wedding movie on it. Uh, Yeah, just just snippets. Uh, Yeah, I've I've thought about trying one of those as well. (laughs) Uh, So each frame you have to like put into Photoshop and line each frame up. So it kind of matches. And I've shot quite a few Lomo Kino mini movies and every time I finish one, I'll, you know, just groan to myself and be like, this is so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you had to line it all up in Photoshop. Uh, you don't have to, but if you want your, if you want your frames to have registration, um, in other words, when basically you're just assembling a bunch of JPEG frames in your editing system and then it animates them. So if you don't, properly line up each frame then i guess your your picture will look a little bit all over the place all right okay but um yeah it's it's i don't know i'm hopeful but i think uh, a very small percentage of podcast listeners are going to embrace film movie making it does seem like it is the the hardest part of it all. I mean, especially with the cost involved. Um, I want to ask you something else that's very much part of the FPP. I mean, I, I don't. I'm pretty sure I never heard of this term before, so I I, I don't know whether you are fully um, attributed for creating it. Um, but gear acquisition syndrome is something for my for my money is synonymous with the FPP. Um, and and is and at this point synonymous with the film photography community in general. Uh, do you still suffer from gas, Michael? Is this still a problem for you, or have <laughs> you got over it now? Well, uh, a few years ago, I did, and I'm at the point now where I'm actually looking to sell off some of the doubles and triples of cameras <laughs> I bought. <laughs> <laughs> that was warm, and it it's it is attributed to you know film like a sweating situation where you know you have gear acquisition syndrome and you're you know it's like a little mini obsession and i would buy like i'm like oh my god a black canon ae1 body you know and i would buy two of them i couldn't i couldn't just buy one i have two you know one as a spare, you know, in my camera bag. I mean, well, gosh, what if the first body fails? <laughs> so, um, yes, most recently I went and bought a, a Canon Pelix, which is a 1965 SLR. And as soon as I bought it and I have it, you know, I have it here today with me. I'm thinking, oh, I, I'm, I need another one. It, it may be considered a disease. Here <laughs> So there's no doubt this big time. 
as you folks do have the film sweats the film sweats is also a condition it could be fatal i guess if you sweat too (laughs) (laughs) but there would be times i mean not so much anymore but a few years ago where like i'd be like okay i'm gonna meet so-and-so you know which camera should i bring and i literally because i had to leave i'd be looking at my watch i'd be like oh my god i couldn't decide what gear to pull i couldn't decide what to shoot with and it became like a sweating situation. Do you guys have that? Yes. <laughs> we we I think between the three of us we have a, a range because I I'm I think I'm probably closer to where you are now, Michael. Whereas I I don't have a large collection of cameras. I I have uh, I, I have you know one one of each more or less. Although for my main go to thirty five mil cameras, I do have two the same. Um, but that that's more because in, you know to have different film in them rather than in case one fails. Although I suppose it's there for that too. But uh, but uh, I I am probably the uh, the the least gassy uh, of the Sunny Sixteen hosts. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. it's difficult. I mean, I was I was away for two days, I, I, and on Friday evening before I left, I probably spent a good fifteen twenty minutes picking up every camera and putting it back down again. <laughs> like, oh, this one, no, no, this one, no, no, this one. Um, yeah, it is it is a problem, and I think it is going to be in the was it the diagnostic manual, <laughs> the next edition of that. Because um, yeah, and, and you're no better, are you, Rach? No, I just have lots of bits of lots of cameras that don't work. <laughs> unfortunately rather than like a nice curated wardrobe of cameras that's just you know like i don't know six or eight cameras which would seem sensible um yeah it ends up going being that whole i can't leave it on the shelf it looks sad you know i'll do something with it or i can't walk away although i was very good in berlin because i did find an analog camera shop and i didn't buy a single thing I was very impressed with myself. There was literally no Olympus at all. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I went in there. I was like, oh, just having a little look around, had a little chat with the guy. Um, I was like, do you have any Olympus in? Olympi? <laughs> or a lens? or any? No, nothing. No Olympus. So, in, the, in a way, it was probably for the best. And I left without anything. I was very good. Well, well done, yes. Rach. That's Thanks. that's quite that's quite impressive. Saved from yourself. It's an achievement, an achievement for me, I have to say. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's all your fault, Michael, because, you know, it, it's li- listening to the FPP, you know, it was out there and, and, and talking us through all of those cameras that you could get and enjoy. I think you've uh, you've spawned a generation. <laughs> well, I'm very happy about that. Did you, I mean, you must have, like... Because you must have started to see that when you talk about a camera on a show, suddenly they're far more popular. Either they're going far quicker on um, eBay. Did that become a thing that you actually became aware of happening? Uh, yes, absolutely. Although I have no way of gauging if, you know, what what wheels are in place to make that happen. For example, is it? Is it the FPP or is it just lining up with something else going on? Like the Pentax K1000 uh, is a camera much in demand. And um, is it because it's our FPP camera of the year every year? Maybe. I don't really know. Or, you know, FPP predicting the return of Ektachrome and then it happens. Uh, m- listeners thought that I had some kind of inside information, 
I didn't. <laughs> you're pulling the strings at Kodak. Come on, fess up. You're the power behind the throne here. This is what's happening, isn't that? The most incredible thing is, and I actually had a bit of a rant on on the show, which was how, you know, and I, how, how can Polaroid reintroduce a Polaroid one step without the rainbow on it? <laughs> <laughs> and now, Six months later, the rainbow is back on the one step two. Now, <laughs> I don't think that has anything to do with me, but I claim it I, anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to, if that's what people think or if that's what it is, I'm thrilled because, you know, I, I think as you folks know, I mean, we're, we're pure enthusiasm and that's, that's hard to find in this world. <laughs> it is. It is. I, t- I tell you what. So uh, where are you going to lead us all next then? You know, what, what's next for FPP? What are the plans for the future? Um. <laughs> <laughs> and more importantly, which cameras should I go and buy loads of on eBay before you mention them on your show? <laughs> uh, things are, as I, as I mentioned a few times, things in the last 12, 18 months have really picked up regarding interest in film photography and i'm seeing a cycle when i say a cycle i mean i'm seeing a lot of new shooters who need basic instruction so it's almost like everything we've ever talked about could be talked about all over again you know with a different perspective maybe leslie will talk about it whereas Dwayne talked about it back in 2010 you know it's there's so many there's so many new people shooting film for the first time that there seems to be um and and with with the increased interest and the increased communication meaning facebook um instagram there's a lot of information out there and all the information it's it's a lot of information it's not all correct i think that's okay everyone will everyone will stumble through it and figure it out on their own i guess um but and you know i always joke or we've been joking on the show like oh okay how many new film photography podcasts have launched this week (laughs) (laughs) you know so there was a week where that was us yeah (laughs) well you guys are veterans now right (laughs) Uh, well i tell you what yeah we 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 feel like we've been it's been well over two years now so um yeah we feel we feel like we're we're relaxing into it now we've lost our first (laughs) night nerves (laughs) that's excellent i i don't i don't i didn't i don't have an end game for fpp i i wish i could just stay say like oh we're doing 10 years and then we're going on hiatus I, i can't say that because i i don't know if that's going to happen i um, I guess as long as there is a need and a reason for FPP to exist, it will exist. I, I think I don't think I could say it any more simple than that. If if there's just too much information out there, like if you check YouTube out right right now, I'm astonished at the number of instructional videos that have like it's 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 really the world of media is really starting to be a lot of stuff going on. I guess that's a good thing. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I guess every year I I call everyone that's involved with the FPP and I ask them the same question. I'm like, Hey, it's Mike. Um, what do you say? Do you, are, do you want to 
do you want to have a go this year? Do you want to be involved this year? I mean, because I say to everyone involved with FPP that, you know, everyone is here because they want to be here. And if there's an indication they don't want to be part of it anymore, then they shouldn't be. And that's what happened with Dwayne Polkew. You know, I know Dwayne a very long time, and it just wasn't right for him that time. And he went and did other things. And that's that's fine. There's no, no you know, he everyone needs to do what they need to do. And as long as they're enthusiastic about coming down or driving nine hours to be here, uh, I am all for it. Uh, you know, um, I've seen a lot of listeners come and go. And some of them, they come, they go, and then they come back. And some have written me and say, oh, my God, I can't believe you're still here. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> or <Not only. laughs> we dedicated a few shows to, you know, the, the rut, the, you know, artistic rut, which is, you know, whatever's going on in your life, you just lost your mojo and you, you can't, you know, you're just not shooting or you don't, you're not happy with your results. And these are all natural things. And I think that's perfectly fine. So um, as long as the, the vibe is there, um then we're gonna be here uh but based upon what i do personally which is handle film in some way shape or form every day i'm thinking fpp in some way shape or form as long as i'm around will will be be here in some some way shape or form so um it's, as long as it's fun and accessible and people can contact us and get questions answered and we can help them with their photography, that's uh, that's the best I can offer, I think. Well, do you know what? Um, I am personally very grateful and I think I, I speak for a, a large proportion of the film photography community worldwide probably at this point. Um, you know, the effort that you guys have put in, uh, you know, from the start and all the way through and, and all the schools and students that have benefited. Um, I can't see the need for the FPP going away and and, and I, I i i'm grateful for what you've done so so thank you and thank you for coming on the show um we need to take a quick break now which is probably something we've borrowed from the fpp as well <laughs> oh. but we'll take a quick break now and we'll come back and i hope you'll stay with us for the rest of the show And we're back and you know in that break which as ever is longer for us than it is for you guys I did not manage to get Michael to divulge the source of his secret recordings that they put in the FPP breaks <laughs> <laughs> I Michael we're gonna have to you know uh, apply the thumb screws on that one I think you'll have to give up the sources one day one day I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in, in, until we get until we get that until we get that radio gold uh, in, into our archives as well, uh, uh, we'll have to pursue our normal format. I'm afraid, listeners. Um, so uh, I tell you what, Rach, you weren't here last week, and we've already heard a little bit about what you've been up to in Berlin. But you've got <laughs> other news as well, I think. Uh, yeah, Berlin was great. I mean, it's a fabulous city um, and I did have a fabulous time at the course I was doing. I went to have some uh, training in story curation and actually one of the 
one of the days um, was about us deciding on which source, you know, to use uh, for curation. And um, I chose Flickr because I thought that would be an interesting one for us to uh, to discuss about the idea of how we curate stories, whether it's words or or music or text or or obviously images. So uh, so actually, so good old Flickr got a, a good uh, talking about within uh, within analysing and curation techniques and um, and I've learned quite a bit. So that's good. Wow. Um, I found uh, an old analog camera shop that I mentioned before, but I didn't buy any new cameras. It looked it looked good fun on the outside, but actually, uh, when you went in, um, it was a bit difficult to kind of just sort of rummage. And I think that's what I tend to like to do rather than have to try and have too much of a conversation. I would rather like potter around a bit, pick a few things up, see what see what's up rather than going, oh, they're all in cabinets and I'd have to ask for them specifically, yeah. you know. Do you speak so, any German? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 um, yeah, I can understand how that would make it harder. <laughs> yes, it made it a little bit more awkward. Um uh, but at least it's Berlin, and a lot of people do actually speak English and are very, uh, con- uh, very uh, sort of like open to uh, to chatting anyway. Um, but yeah, you know, just in general, I was like, oh, I just want to kind of go in and have a little look. Um, but yeah, so unfortunately, um, no new cameras bought. Or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. And uh, you know, we were talking before about qual- um, the amount of cameras that each of us have in terms of the uh, the gas situation, <laughs> um, and I think. Uh, mine are probably more like quantity over the quality well not necessarily (laughs) over the quality but just you know it tends to be more like oh well I end up with like six you know old zenits that get donated or whatever you know that kind of thing and then I go oh crap what do I do with all these now (laughs) Um, but again can't be can't bring myself to ever like you know sell them or or whatever i don't really know what to, i just don't know what to do with the ones that i don't use because then i'll also feel bad about being like sorry you're not good enough <laughs> and sending them off I well, if, if there's zenits you could build a nuclear bunker out of them i suppose but <laughs> this, is true. this is true yeah um so yes that was an interesting experience uh walked into this um really nice sort of like co-working space and thought oh this looks very very hipster and lovely and you you can make your own coffees and things at the machine and there's all sorts of like exposed lights and stuff and then uh, they take us over to the corner of the room and say yes so here's here's your space for the week and uh lift up a trapdoor i was like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) um uh, and then had to sort of like stumble our way down um uh, down some sort of like metal stairs and then find the fuse box and switch the lights on and things so that was that there weren't any actual like light switches you just had to like flick fuses <laughs> i was like oh okay um so that was an interesting experience but you know um i'm i, I realized that actually i seem to spend quite a bit of my time in like in bunkers or in cellars or in <laughs> very random places actually um and it's all uh yeah, you know when you turn around, and you think, "How did I end up here? What is going on?" But anyway, um, every Monday yeah, evening so, that happens well, to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe everywhere I go, I'm always searching for that. You know, that small dark room space. You know, maybe that's my happy place, and I inadvertently sort of like seek it out. It would seem. <laughs> maybe you're a closet womble. Is that right? Okay, right. Thanks, Graham, for that wonderful piece of insight. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, that was my my trip to Berlin. We did have a really nice um, 
uh, evening, one of the evenings, we did get to go out and actually have a look around the city because I hadn't shot anything because it had been so busy just on on this uh, doing this train doing this course, uh, so I hadn't actually really seen the city at all. Um, but we did a, a kind of like three hour um, city walk um, on the Thursday, so that was lovely. I did actually get a chance to go out and and uh, and see some of the sites and the and the cool buildings and things. I really enjoyed that and realised that um, actually that Liverpool and Berlin do have um, something in common, which is a site of historical interest that is now a car park. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so in, in, in Liverpool, it's the Cavern Club, and uh, and in Berlin, it's uh, where Hitler committed suicide, which is now a car park and has a recycling bin on top of it, which I thought was actually quite good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there you go. Okay. Um, Excellent, excellent field report. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Great. Um, Can I ask? Sorry, yeah. uh, before we move, because I'm interested, and, and this may be something that actually Michael could speak to as well. You were talking about the fact you were using Flickr as part of your you know, your training thing. How I've I've really fallen away from Flickr <laughs> over the last not not for any particular reason, but uh, how relevant is it these days, and how easy is it to work with? Um, it was a very brief overview, to be honest. I've I've hardly ever used Flickr myself, um, and it, no, it was the the reason I was talking about it was that it came up as part of this to talk about how do we look at stories, where do we find stories, what is the you know what are the pros and cons of particular um, sites, you know whether that be a news mm. site or whether that be you know um, a, a sort of a, your own. Uh, curated timeline on Twitter or you know all sorts of things um so I thought it would be interesting to raise the idea of of Flickr you know to just sort of like go oh um somebody who I was in the group with uses it like all the time and um uses it uh, she works for an NGO um and uh and basically uses it as a way of going okay what's something that we need some images for and then um using the drop down menu for the licensing to make sure that you've got the right kind of licensing because that's really useful actually about twitter is that you about flickr is that you can um you can sort sort by that uh, which means that you can find ones that you know you don't have that you've got a creative commons license on that you can use for anything that you can use also for commercial work uh, and then the other um the other images on there which obviously you're not allowed to um but it's a really useful way of kind of like sorting and and curating uh for want of a better word um as to how you're able to use it mm. so uh so yeah i the the main thing that i found was that you know you, you literally if you if you just type in flick it it's it the first thing that comes up it's full page obviously image um and it's basically sign up so they just kind of want people to become part of that community rather than um, I did find the little about me or about us kind of like section, but it's a tiny little <laughs> line at the bottom uh, mm. along with the other bits and pieces. So in terms of how it presents itself, it's very much about join this amazing, you know, huge community with billions of images. Um, and so, you know, give us our, your email so that you can sign up. I mean, it's great in that it's a free site, um, but they seem to be quite reticent about sharing a lot of information about themselves you know as the, as the team so i just found it quite interesting not saying it's okay. good or bad it was just you know an observation really um but yeah so there we go that was what how that came up anyway yeah. um obviously we were sort of briefly talking about our old Flickr <laughs> uh, account as well weren't we 
um, yes. the, behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, cause Michael, you were saying that when you first kicked off the podcast, that Flickr was quite, you found Flickr quite early on in that. And it was quite important in the early growth of the podcast. I mean, how how has it featured over the years? And has that changed as Flickr has gone on and as the FPP has gone on? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, Flickr was uh, an early um, influence. Uh, when I found Flickr in 2007, it was a way to connect with other film photographers. And over the years we when i say we the whole fpp gang has remained on Flickr, and it's the home of the film photography podcast official forum but we've seen a huge uh decrease in use over the last nine years um with the start of other platforms and other social media uh people abandoned Flickr. um maybe the last four or five years I'm seeing a little bit of return, and I promote Flickr whenever I can on the podcast to say, hey, come on over to Flickr. We all use it to post our images and also allows you to store images of greater um, uh, large files. Uh, And when I am putting together an FPP blog, whether I wrote it or someone else wrote it, I will go to Flickr and I will search Let's say I'm doing a blog on uh, Canon AE-1. I will search Canon AE-1, and I will first pull from all of the people that I'm connected with. And if they have a drop-down that allows you to download, that gives you permission to, to use, I will send them a Flickr mail, say, hey, it's Mike. Can I use your image on our blog? I'll link it back to you. And I have found it always to be incredibly uh, easy to use and very, very helpful when I'm trying to pull together a blog or a video about a certain film. It's a, it's a e- very easy way to find and to connect to that person. Yeah, we've, we've been um, terribly lax. Well, you were saying, Rich, you don't really use Flickr and mm-hmm. Aid and I are on Flickr and have not been great. So continuing <laughs> with our great, um, what was the word that... Uh, Sandra was using last week that we're getting good at aid. Um, D. Oh, wow. This the Dele- word gone. Delegating. Thank you. Delegating. <laughs> so, um, we delegated looking after Instagram to Eric, who's doing a much, much better job of running the Instagram feed than <laughs> I was, which is not hard. Um, Matthew Joseph, uh, photo dude NZ, has volunteered to <laughs> look after our Flickr group because we were doing a appalling job of looking after that so um now that i'm back home and can actually give him the permission to do it um it might actually be worth going there because there has been some chat there but because we've not been doing a great job of being terribly present it's been a bit absent so um yeah uh, if you are a Flickr user and you want to check out our group as well um then know now that it will be getting better care taken of it thanks for reminding <laughs> me about that rage because i forgot no worries <laughs> It was ill. Um, so yes, that was um, that was most of, most of my week, sort of uh, doing that really. And uh, today has uh, also been about prepping and getting ready for my artist residency, which starts tomorrow. That's the Make It in Libraries uh, project from the Arts Council um, project that I'm going to be doing, which is exciting. So I sent I put the little link in the show notes. I don't know if you had a chance to have a look at it yet, guys, but um, just so you can see what I'll be up to. 
Um, it's basically a um, way of bringing some art and creativity to uh, residents within um, the area of the of the Wirral. And uh, it means that it's a way of sort of helping nurture some creative skills under under sort of like some mentoring by artists such as myself as um there's other artists as well doing uh doing other workshops as part of their residency so um they are about showing the use of the library space is not just a library you know and kind of uh showing actually how many other uses there are for it as a creative space or um I work with um, with other organisations and social enterprises who who use it as like a place for gigs and and for concerts and things and, and what have you. So uh, it's really lovely to see how how amazing. I think libraries are just fabulous. They're just such a cool like space to be able to use. And I'm really looking forward to going back to Birkenhead um, Central Library, which is where I'll be running mine, um, because it's uh, it's a beautiful kind of um, old building and has uh, very creepy, cool like uh, underground basements that used to be the old <laughs> children's library. And I'm like, oh, this looks awesome. So, um, so yeah. So I'm going to be um, basically demonstrating um, how to create your own cyanotypes and and generally sort of talk them through the uh, the sort of victorian pro- photographic process really so yeah it should be lovely um the idea is that obviously during the workshops i'll get i'll show people how to do this that they'll have an opportunity to make their own and then eventually um it they they will you know they'll hopefully make you know two or three pieces two maybe that they'll take away with them one that they'll leave uh, with us and that will form part of um an actual exhibition formal exhibition which will happen at the williamson art gallery in november that's very cool are you going to be in another basement doing this probably <laughs> is that um, going to be a problem with cyanotypes no well yeah well do you know it's more i looked at the weather and was like oh my god seriously after all the beautiful weather we we have had um this summer it's uh it's got to september and it's decided to chuck it down so it looking at tomorrow it was like a thick black cloud and rain i was like oh well that's lovely so i'm taking both both backup lamps obviously to uh, to help with that um actually the workshops i, I did go around and look at the uh, looked at the library again and was like maybe the basement maybe not the basement this time maybe another room <laughs> another space <laughs> um and i did find uh, a a nice room that's actually got some like wood panel um uh wood paneling on the walls and things and some very cool like old uh bookcases sort of like built in and stuff so uh yeah i'm looking forward to kind of being outside and and helping them sort of like forage for some objects to use um and i'm also thinking i might get people to to actually just sort of like shoot some pinhole maybe on the undo or something um that i can obviously process post workshop and uh, and use that use those maybe as sort of um uh you know sort of like mini contact prints or something in the or or to create some digital negatives from as well so yeah we will see it's always difficult to know exactly how these projects are going to turn out when you start i kind of go in with a bit of an idea or or you know i do i don't mean to sound like i i've not planned it because i do i do plan it i plan it probably too much i worry too much about these things but um it, you have to be flexible you have to kind of just 
be able to facilitate and and see how things go and take take some of those uh, initial sort of like seeds of ideas and then you'll you'll come to something else from that as as things develop so um so i'm trying to get better at just going it's okay see see what happens and we'll take we'll take you know what works from it and make it make it better as we go sort of thing so yeah that's my general plan <sighs> So that was <laughs> sounds like fun. What I've got coming up. So oh yeah, I am looking forward to. It. I really am. It's going to be. It will be great fun. Yay! Cool. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, thanks, Ray. So Graham, under onto a couple of news bits from you. Not not so much about you, I guess, but from you that you've popped into the show notes this week. Oh no, that's Rach. This is Rach. Oh, yeah, been popping me. bits in here. Oh, yeah. is it? Sorry, my mistake. Uh, it's okay. I thought you might want to talk about your own news, but um, in terms of uh, under the heading of industry news, things of interest where we put those things each week um i realized that the submission for polaroid photo calendar is open hillary um clark sent that over to me which is really nice of her because i'd mentioned um that i'd missed it last time the the submission um and uh, and so they've opened up the submissions for the polaroid photo calendar 2020 it's the photo darium um and i'm sure we can pop that in the show notes can't we graham that'd be 2020 that's right because obviously it's september now so the ones that were submitted for 2019 obviously have been now printed and um are in existence for you to be able to buy um so 2019 is obviously coming up in just a few months so those are they're ready to go um they obviously get them sorted and printed and, and ready to buy um you know by sort of like october so you've got october november ready for sort of like christmas and, and ready for the new year so you get at least a couple of months to buy them before the new year um but it means that they've opened the call for entries for 2020 um now so uh yeah exciting cool. stuff okay yeah. is this is this polaroid photo calendar is this one of these things where the word polaroid is being used as a substitute for instant picture or does it actually have to be polaroid okay um, well done uh, so all photographers are invited to be part of photo darium 2020 submissions to be original scans of instant photos made with the polaroid sx70 600 or new impossible polaroid camera we do not uh-huh. accept fakes you can take up to five um five favorite days and upload up to five photos one for each day in the end there will be three photos from different photographers which will be competing for each day if you like so uh, so you choose five dates you upload five images um and then obviously you wait to see whether you get you know the pairing and what have you so um there'll be quite a few um uh names that i recognize i think like we've got ruth story we've got hillary clark um they both those ladies came along and did a little workshop with me um uh, a few months ago yeah i'm sure there's there's loads of others who uh who you know we'll know of but if not pop along to the website because i i think you can just sort of like click on each person's name and i imagine it will take you to their work so uh, so that's okay. quite cool so, so it's photo darium mm-hmm. but not in stacks for this it has to be Apparently polaroids not, no. okay um I'm, I'm intrigued michael because we talked earlier about your love of shooting polaroid and impossible and also you've done loads of stuff with lamography over the years um have you how what's your feelings on the lamography instant cameras are, are there any of those that have tickled your fancy over the years um not <laughs> personally but uh john fideli and leslie lazenby have both uh purchased uh most recently the uh lamography square the lomo mm-hmm, instance mm-hmm. 
camera. And I jumped on the Fuji Instax Square bandwagon. Please don't. I hear in the audience. <laughs> Not the digital one. Oh, my God. Oh, the, the, the new one, the SQ. Oh, the new one. Oh, phew. Yeah. It's uh, a pure analog camera and takes their Lomo Instant Square film. So... Oh, yeah, I, I've got the uh, which one have I got? The the Lomography. You've got the Lomo that, Square, but it shoots yeah. the Instax Square. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so it shoots right. the Fuji Square film. But mm-hmm. I guess that's not going to make me uh, eligible for photo dairy. Well, and it's, it's an interesting question because I think the reason that they've said it has to be a Polaroid SX seventy six hundred or the impossible Polaroid camera is because it's the square formats. The actual diary, the actual calendar itself is very much the square format. So obviously the uh, Fuji Instax up until this point really had always been either the mini or the wide. So now we've got the Fuji Instant Square. I wonder because that square format is the same you know, in the it's a square shape um, ratio. Maybe maybe they will start to accept those in the in the future. I don't know. It says not for at the moment. It doesn't say that they do for this one. But I'm just thinking, you know, perhaps um, I can understand that. You know, if if it were mini or if it were wide, then that's a different format. You know, mm-hmm. of shape. Um, so I can see why they would stick with it just being Polaroid. Uh, ones or impossible project ones um, to keep the square format but now that the Fuji are doing that I wonder if that will change hmm. uh, what have you found... mm. sorry how... go on no, because I actually haven't heard anything about I mean obviously I heard when it was coming out the SQ6 but how have you found the actual camera Mike because I've not spoken to anybody who's used one of them <clears throat> uh, the Fuji SQ6 uh, yeah uh, you, you want to know if I like it or not yeah, yeah. Um, yes, uh, it's it's amazingly easy to use. It has some great simple future uh, features, including a, a selfie. It has a little mirror on the lens if you if you're into selfies. Um, and for the first few weeks, I was like a maniac with it. I took it with me <laughs> every and I'm shooting, shooting, shooting. But I don't know. Um, I'm. I'm currently not in a, a I'm currently not in a uh, instant phase. I keep going back to 35 millimeter because I've been trying out, you know, home processing and lots of different developers. And uh, Leslie and I are testing some new film stocks. So I not, I'm, I'm not finding myself as Polaroid or instant film crazy as I used to be. Uh, yeah, go things in phase. I, I was did out you with, go through phases? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was out. like, like I may. I, I'm thinking. I'm not. One, I'm not I'm curious. I'm not sure if I'm gonna keep the Fuji Instax Square camera. Mm-hmm. It hasn't found a place in your heart. I was out with my um, old. Uh, was it the Instax 200, mm-hmm. one of the big Fatso cameras, mm-hmm. and. Um, <laughs> you, you, it's been a while since I've used that. You forget how big those pictures are. They make some good big pictures, though. They're so good. They're so yeah. good. This is why yeah. I love wide. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's good fun. They're quality well, stuff. Great, great fun at parties. Great. Yes. Great fun at parties. And I did mention on, on the FPP, still the battle between, in my mind at least, between Polaroid Originals and Fuji Instax, which is... Polaroid Originals is still a struggle at a family party 
when people are expecting it to develop immediately in their hand. Mm. Have you guys found that at all? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, it, it takes some explaining to say, oh, no, I need to tuck this away for 15 minutes. It's a lot better than it used to be, though. It is a hell of a lot better than it used to be. It, it, it's difficult here. You know, I'm part of a big Italian-American family. Very, very much like, you know, Sopranos or uh, Saturn. <laughs> you know, if I bring an impossible camera at a big, uh, like a reunion party or something, you know, an old Italian uncle, they'll they'll hold it and they'll they'll look at me like, <laughs> what's this? what's this? Or after it develops, that they'll be like, that's it. <laughs> so I've experienced this. So with the Instax Square, I'm finding it much easier in family situations. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I can appreciate that, yeah. <laughs> the, the thing I find myself worrying about slightly with the impossible stuff is um, my partner, Sinead, she's made this lovely big, well, she's got a big frame with wires going across it that she's hanging photos on. And some of the photos that she's hanging there are, you know, new Polaroid pictures. And I'm just looking at them thinking, how long are these going to last out in the open? I know they're a lot more stable than they used to be, but hanging them up in daylight seems like it might <laughs> limit how many years there's actually a picture mm-hmm. there. It'll be interesting to see anyway. <laughs> cool. The, so, um, go on, Yeah, I was going to say, the um, the other um, uh, link that I found uh, was a story that I came across, which is the Somerville Toy Camera Festival. Um, so that popped up in my, in my, I think it was in my Google Alerts or something, actually. And when I clicked on that and had a little look um it's saying the somerville um toy camera festival is more than just child's play and they were talking about you know um these days kids get cell phones back in the day when you turn seven or eight your parents thought you appropriately responsible they would buy you a toy camera um so it turns out that this uh, festival has been going on i think for six years i think they say and as i scrolled down i saw a name that i know which is jm golding um so i'm presuming this would be the same jm golding as uh, is a friend of the show listening to the show and who has submitted some wonderful um uh, entries to some of our cheap shots challenges uh, in the past so i saw it says jm golding's before you knew where to look um courtesy of the artist so um it's really it's been lovely to see her work there um in this in this article talking about the somerville toy camera festival and uh, yeah there's some other examples and they talk about the festival itself i'm not entirely sure how long it goes on for um let me see. It might say here exhibition dates, um, September the sixth to October the thirteenth. I think it's maybe moving around to a few different, a few different sort of like exhibition galleries and and what have you. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I believe they're all in America. So yeah, very cool. And uh, again, we'll pop the the link to that. I think in the in the show notes so that people can have a little look at it. Excellent. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. No, right. Please. So well, on to some listener emails then, and including one which I. Th- think michael may have some professional uh, experience in but i'll come to that in a minute first of all uh, shout out to alistair dougal uh, thanks alistair you sent us a, a link to uh, a a very affordable copy of the darkroom handbook by michael langford which uh, uh, I believe we were talking about the on the show the uh, a couple of shows ago, but it may be one of the ones that I couldn't make.
late when I was on holiday or something because I don't have a strong recognition of, of having this conversation personally. Uh, but we'll put that link in the show notes. That's a, a link to a second-hand book, uh, but it might be useful for some people. Right, on to the thing that I think Michael might be able to help us with. So we've had an email from John Michael Mendiza or Mendiza. Forgive me, John Michael. Um, if I've got, one of those has got to be wrong, right? Maybe both, <laughs> maybe both of them. And uh, he sent us a great email, uh, and he very kindly said, in you know, in honour of our new email policy, I was allowed to take which bits I wanted to <laughs> out of his email. <laughs> so I've chosen a bit where he's go, got both a question and a tip, and these are on scanning. And this is why I think that Michael might have something uh, yeah, that, that, that could add to this. So the question is, and these are John Michael's words, how the hell do you get a decent colour from a negative? <laughs> this is such a good question. Oh, God. Um, uh, and uh, specifically, John Michael says, uh, I shot a roll of Portra 400 and had it developed and scanned at my local photo lab. I then scanned it at home with my Canon 9000F2 scanner using ViewCan software. Then I put it on my LED light pad, took a picture of it, and went to use Photoshop to reverse the negative. Um, and uh, the colours on all three of the scans look off to him. <laughs> Michael, is this something you can help out with? Uh, scanning is is a huge topic, and I receive a lot of emails about scanning. and We've yet to dive in and do any long talks or videos about scanning. I personally use the Epson V700. And when you scan a negative, well, I think that a lot of folks think that once you put your negative in your scanner, that there's going to be some auto feature or function. And there are, and for some film stocks, it works beautifully. But for most you will need to make some changes to your to your colors. It needs to be, you know, you need to essentially color correct each frame. So in your scanner, and I think most scanners have this, there might be a, a with, on the Epson, it's called a professional mode. You just click that, and that allows for you to open up some pop-ups for your exposure and for your colors. And for your colors, you'll get... Um, I believe three different sliders. One will be uh, cyan to red. The other one will be magenta to green. And the third one will be yellow to blue. So this may seem overwhelming to folks, but it's practice makes perfect, I've found. You need to look at your image on the screen and just gently start, you know, play around with an image and start sliding your sliders till you start seeing some some pleasing colors also if you do a quick google search you'll find um quite a few uh youtube videos that talk about color but but i do believe a lot of folks think that there's some kind of a magic bullet or button uh for scanning and and well, sadly, there is not. <laughs> no, there isn't. It, it's hard. It's hard work, uh, and 
it, it, or getting colours right in anything is hard work. I mean, it's. Uh, I often wonder why you know some of the tools that are the software tools that are made available to photographers for for colour correction. I mean, scanning or or just digital photography. Why they don't include some of the tools, the colour correction tools that video editors get these days. Uh, you know things like uh, the the scopes that will come as part of any video editing tool. Um, the fact that you know you could look at something that's not colourful and use it to correct your colour uh, is is quite a powerful thing. And I often wonder why it never made it into yeah you know, things like uh, Lightroom and stuff like that. But there you go. That's just a, a personal thing. But thank you, uh, Michael. Um, I tell you what, um, John Michael, uh, listener, has also got a tip. Uh, this one might be good for. Graham, actually, uh, just picking a name randomly out of uh-huh. thin air. Tips for reducing dust when digitizing important black and white negatives. All right. <laughs> so for those of you, <laughs> for those of you out there that like Graham, occasionally get a little dust on their legs. Just a smidge. Uh, just a smidge. Uh, John Michael says, if you are willing to take the time, scan or photograph your negative a few times, cleaning the negative between each scan or photo. Open the files as layers in Photoshop. I'm sure other editing software can do this too, but I use Photoshop, he says. Um, Auto-align layers, convert to a smart object, set stack mode to maximum, um, which I think is a made-up setting. (laughs) (laughs) This will take the brightest pixel from each layer. No, it's not a made-up setting, really. This will take the brightest pixel from each layer, eliminating black pixels caused by dust flatten and invert to get the positive wow that's a lot of steps that is a very good very technical way of doing things i'll be honest i'd rather just have dusty pictures and let people (laughs) suffer i heard your little like "Uh uh-huh at the beginning where he said if you're willing to take the time and then i heard the "Uh uh-huh i was like yeah you lost great in there already <laughs> but but thank you very much though uh, john michael because uh that is it does sound like a very good way of actually combating that and again as she says as he says you know if you're willing to take the time that would be a good way of doing it you know perhaps for one or two very special photos if you've not got the time to do it for all of them if there's something that you particularly love that you might want to you know get blown up without there being you know splodges and fingerprints and you know whole you know, Marcy fluff, <laughs> uh, dog hair and everything all over it, then maybe that's a way to do it. So that's cool. Uh, Michael, you not only are you developing loads of stuff at home, but, but you are re-spooling film for the FPP shop. How on earth do you manage to uh, not bugger up all of the film that you're... Because, I mean, there's so many places it can go wrong. How have you managed to develop a system that you can re-spool stuff and not get dust on it and not get light in there? What What's the secret? Um, I think it's just the the fact that I've been working with film for such a long time. And also I have a, a complete dark room here at FPP HQ. So all of the spool is taken off of large reels and cut down to 100 foot reels. Uh, and then those hundred foot reels are put into, um, cartridge loaders that are manually loaded into film. And is there, because I mean, you talked at length on um, the FPP about um, things, particularly with like the cine film about removing Remjet, how that's not a big deal, and how developing C41 and E6, none of these things are a big deal. Are there 
any task like for me dust on the negatives is just one, one of those things i just say well it's just there if i ever take a picture that's worth not looking at with dust on maybe i'll make an effort then but are there any tasks in the film photography process that actually you look at and go oh this is a pain in the butt i don't want to deal with this or have you managed to find a way to find make all of them relatively uh hassle free um the only real pain in the butt tasks are when I take on a project like getting asked to come on here. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. One twenty-seven film or one twenty film because that requires me working completely in the dark with multiple, parts, meaning backing paper, tape, the film. Um, I did this most recently with uh, one sixteen and six sixteen film. This is film. <laughs> yeah. That is uh, 70 millimeter in, in width. So I came up with the brilliant idea of making some available. So <laughs> I called my buddies at Film Rescue. They're up in Canada. And they had a bunch of backing paper, vintage backing paper and spools. So I um, sourced those from those folks. And then I went to Eastman Kodak bought a thousand foot roll of Kodak 200C film. And then I, you know, the task of putting, making a, ultimately a finished roll of film to uh, put in the FPP online store for someone who wants to shoot with a vintage Kodak brownie. It was a fun project and I've made small batches of this film available, like 15, 20, 25 rolls at a time. Because the block of time to work in the dark, it just gets a little weird. Like after X amount of time working in the dark, even with a Walkman in there, it just gets a little too creepy for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you hadn't spent your childhood watching all those horror movies, you might be all right. Do you know the... the, uh, Yeah, sorry, Michael, go on. The DIY projects are the most uh, uh, daunting to me. (laughs) <laughs> how much of your thousand foot roll do you have left to get through <laughs> well you know when i enter uncharted territory I, I make notes i haven't gotten through it all of it yet because i i ask these questions i mean i mean simpler questions like how many rolls of 120 could i roll from 100 feet of film and i'm horrible in math <laughs> i i just keep little little post-its all over and I just make a little, a little mark every time I, I roll a roll. Um, so. So um, you have some tips for Graham who bought a 500 foot roll, I believe. Have you rolled five. any of it? <laughs> no, I haven't. Graham? Yeah, I, I did recently pick up. A, um, I think it was, it was a um, off cut of some, um, what's the tungsten um balanced Sydney film I can't remember the 200 ISO tungsten balance film I can't remember which one that is um the codex Sydney film but uh yeah there's I'm an definitely... X in it wasn't there yeah I'm I can't remember which one it is it's not not the 500t the 200t that'd be what it is isn't it that sounds about right <laughs> there's no um, X in it <laughs> sorry Graham. no um but yeah that, that's definitely waiting for me to mess up completely at some point <laughs> uh but yeah it is uh 
I, 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 yeah, it's the prospect of sitting in the dark trying to figure that out. Um, but that is not appealing. And I, I taking the lid off a tin like that and, and just going, oh, uh, I've dropped it on the floor or something because I am fundamentally cack handed. Uh, it's a little worrying. Never mind. <laughs> Sorry, Aid. Carry on. No, no, no. It's all good. All good. All good. Right. But I think uh, actually uh, we, we are fairly close to the end of the show for this week. Uh, but we've got a, a great email from a listener. Um, and, and I'm not sure whether he wants us to read this out or not, to be honest. But <laughs> that is one of the risks in sending an email to the show. <laughs> It might get read out. And so thank you to uh, Fraser Yule uh, for his email uh, this week. And I shall read it. Uh, I shall try and do it justice word for word. Well, we'll see how far I get. He says, good evening, sunbeams. I really ought to be out taking photos. But the lure of homemade wine and a fire won out. Still, Mm. at least I did manage to get out with the RZ67 earlier this week at Burnham-on-Sea when working down south. So I don't feel too bad. Now I have to blame somebody for the biology lesson that is about to ensue at home with our 10-year-old daughter. For a youngling, she has shot with a Canon 500N and an old OM20. Don't tell her, but I think she gets better results than I do. (laughs) So this is clearly from a parent who's feeling threatened by the talent of his children. That happens happens to me, actually, as well. (laughs) Okay, Fraser goes on to say, having been listening to some older podcasts, I seem to have the rocker tune fixed in my head. There we go, Rach. And keep keep humming it out loud. No bad thing, really. But the wife did ask what it was, so we popped it on Spotify for her to hear. At this stage, I did explain to my daughter that Rach in the podcast plays in this band. Quick as a flash, she asks, is that the one with the ovaries? (laughs) (laughs) And apparently this caused much hilarity in Fraser and and, uh, he he spat out the wine that he was drinking at the time uh, and... uh, and now he has planned a slightly more involved biology lesson for Sunday <laughs> evening entertainment. Oh, God. He says, I've been listening a few weeks ago to the podcast that Rachel joined full time. Oh, that's a, oh, he's quite a long way back in the back catalogue. Yeah. yeah. Um, little people, it would appear, have ears. Thanks, Graham. Oh, so, Graham, he's blaming you. Yes, he was the one who said this in the first place. Not my fault. I remember that. Uh, Do you know why I remember that? Because that was one of the rudest things Graham have ever said in a whole litany of really, really rude things. Saying that we invited you to join the team because you had ovaries was pretty poor, Rach. I deny it flatly and nobody can prove I ever said anything. Uh Yeah, yeah, it's on the internet, mate. (laughs) Um, People are are writing about it on the internet. That is the trouble with podcasting. Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, yes, yeah, so Fraser goes on to say, I'm only hoping she hasn't heard any of the shows with Hamish in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it could be worse. It, it could be, be worse. worse. Do we put the explicit tags when Hamish comes on the show? We have done in the past, yes. <laughs> I always feel it, it never occurs to me that never occurs to me that people might actually be listening to the show. <laughs> Any, anyway, oh dear, oh dear, great, great, oh, Graham. I, I know I, I don't need to ask Graham this question. Michael, is there, is there just to close? Help us close out this show here, and, and thank you for being on. Is there are there any uh, embarrassing or, or semi embarrassing you know historical podcast things that come back to bite you occasionally? Um, we've received a, a few emails over the years uh, about John Fidelli's behavior. <laughs> John Fidelli's fantastic behavior. He's a role yeah. model. 
he is. It, uh, it is, it is. The world has changed so amazingly in the last few years that some of the early episodes seem a bit politically incorrect. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> do you know what? I, I, I do feel your pain. I mean, speaking as as you are, you know, the uh, somewhat of the, the sensible one on the show or tries to keep everybody together. It is, it is tough at times, isn't it? <laughs> oh, We're a project, Aid. We're a project for you. Yeah. You think when certain folks get together, it's sort of like, you know, a podcast with John Fideli is fine. But if John Fideli and Dane Johnson are in the room at the same time, <laughs> then just all hell breaks loose. It was the same way with John and Dwayne Polkew. You know, it's just that's why we have things like the talking cube and, you know, <laughs> on the table to try to keep things organized now. Mm, that ah. seems sensible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think actually, because we talked about the talking cube uh, off recording, and you probably just ought to explain quickly what the talking cube is. Otherwise, that's oh. going to be the most baffling sentence anybody's <laughs> ever said on this podcast. So it would be if someone was making a presentation of a camera review, it would be that one of us, sometimes me, sometimes John, would just just rudely interrupt and just come up with something off topic. Sometimes about. <laughs> soda pop or candy they happen to be chewing and got to the point where i'd be editing and i'd listen i'd be like oh my god leslie put so much time into you know putting this review together and here we are just like mowing her over you know in verbally and i thought well we need a little more organization (laughs) (laughs) so now you're only allowed to talk if you have the talking cube a talking cube is a pen with a magic cube flash cube taped to the top of it. So <laughs> someone's delivering a topic about a certain camera or a book review. You pick up the the talking cube and then that person sees it. And then maybe they'll stop and say, oh, John, do you have a question? Uh, yes, I do. And it's just a little more sensible than just, you know, bedlam all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well there, there you go listeners this is you know we we've had on the, the 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 man who invented the film photography podcast uh and in part at least inspired the three of us to start the sunny 16 podcast so um yeah michael um fantastic to have you on the show have you have you enjoyed yourself oh my god this has been terrific i wish i could just fly over to england right now <laughs> yes <laughs> good. i'll pick you up from the airport <laughs> right well there we go excellent thank you and uh, we always like our guests to uh to like to give our guests a chance to uh self-promote um i'm pretty sure most of our listeners have already heard of the the, the fpp uh but uh where, where would you like to direct our listeners to to see your work i think simply uh go to film photography project.com uh and you'll from that portal you'll see the podcast the store uh, information about our school donation program. If you are in the States and you know of extra gear that is not being used, if you send that to us, we will um, check it in and then send it back out to schools that are in need. So all every, all greatly appreciated. And um, from the site, you could also reach me via email. That's great. 
Excellent. Thank you so, so much. Well, folks, that's it for this week. Uh, We are the Sunny 16 podcast pretty much everywhere on the Internet. And as you heard from Graham, uh, Eric's doing a great job looking after our Instagram account. Um, Graham, what are you looking after at the moment? You're doing Twitter, aren't you? Uh, Yes. (laughs) And I'm I'm doing email. uh, So you can pretty much anywhere that you just type in Sunny 16 podcast and and, uh, or start at the the website, sunny16podcast.com. Sorry, Rach, were you going to say something, add something there? No, 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 that's fine. Sunny16podcast.com. Yeah. Sunny16podcast.com it is then. Right, well, that is the end of the show. Uh, We are going to play you out now uh, with the music that was the subject (laughs) of Fraser's email. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it is, of course, Rocker and uh, the song, um, well, sorry, the album, Promises I Should Have Kept, uh, you can find on Spotify and play it to your daughters or your sons (laughs) or your mothers or whoever, really. Or you could just listen to it for your own enjoyment. Uh, Yeah. Now for those ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It has been an honour and a privilege. As it is every week, we will speak to you next week, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.